These are days of tough times and ongoing uncertainties. But in Spring Branch, we're taking tangible steps to help our local businesses by telling neighbors about PPP loans, linking them to online courses, and help from our top leaders. Spring Branch is working for businesses. Yours. Find out more at sbmd.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Looped In. This is the Houston Chronicle podcast all about real estate. The dirt, the deals, the people, the places. It's all here. I'm Nancy Sarnoff, real estate reporter with the Houston Chronicle. And today on the show, we are going to be talking about one of Houston's most accomplished, most famous, and probably most complicated businessmen, George Mitchell. George Mitchell was a real estate developer, a wildcatter, and a philanthropist, and he died in 2013 at the age of 94. This month, a biography of George Mitchell is coming out called George P. Mitchell, Fracking Sustainability and an Unorthodox Quest to Save the Planet. Joining us to talk about the book is none other than the author himself, Lauren Steffi, who happens to be a former Houston Chronicle business columnist. So we go back uh, a little ways. <laughs> Lauren, welcome to Looped In. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Lauren, our audience here on Looped In probably knows George Mitchell as the developer of the Woodlands and his real estate developments in Galveston. But I want to read a quote that I read about your book, which said, the first definitive biography of Mitchell, placing his life and legacy in a global context from the significance of his discoveries to the lingering controversies they inspired. I want to talk about some of those controversies. And I think we should probably start with the most obvious fracking. I'd say that's pretty controversial. So... You actually start the book with a note to your readers on the word fracking and its spelling. You you spell fracking with a K. I do. F-R-A-C-K-I-N-G. Yes. But it used to have a C well, and no K. Yeah, what? this... This is, now, this may be this is the most controversial thing. <laughs> well, you know, in some ways it is, because in oil and gas circles, um, there has become a lot of, this, well, there's been a lot of discussion about this. A lot of people really bristle when you when you spell fracking with a K. Um, Why? Because, Why because, you know, people who are opposed to fracking, primarily environmentalists and whatnot, have started using it almost as a dirty word, right? Mm -hmm. And it kind of sounds like a dirty word, and it's got <laughs> that, that CK, that's a strong consonants in it. Mm -hmm. And so the idea was that the word originally, it comes from hydraulic fracturing, right? Mm -hmm. So it was fracturing and, and to frack was sort of an industry slang term and it was F-R-A-C, mm -hmm. right? And so then fracking, you know, petroleum engineers argued should be F-R-A-C-C-I-N-G or actually F-R-A-C-I-N-G. That was the original, that was the original term. And I said, well, no, no, because that's Phrasing. Phrasing, right. And then they said, well, what about two C's? And I'm like, no, that's just weird. Like, that's you know, it's, we're, we're really, yeah, <laughs> we're really coming, trying to come up with a phonetic uh, thing here. And so in this case, the English majors win, right? Right. And, and, you know, but it was actually something that came up repeatedly. And in fact, some of the people I quote in the book 
Still not happy that I spelled Ooh. with a K, which is why I put the the, the, the note at the beginning yeah. to explain, you know, sort of the evolution of the word. word. And I saw that actually my uh, my successor here at the Houston Chronicle um, had a column, uh, was it today or recently, mm-hmm. it was in the last few days, saying, you know, we need to come up with a better word. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't, I don't know what that would be. Maybe like rock massage or, you know, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> Shale swaying. I, I don't know. <laughs> you know, something that sounds better. But, yeah. um, you know, it, it is... It it is a, a surprisingly uh, uh, heated discussion that can occur over this issue. So. And now there's also a Battlestar Galactica reference. Well, see, if you watch Battlestar Galactica, and I think you probably have more familiarity with that than you're letting on to your uh, to your <laughs> listeners here. Um, that was actually a term, you know, that they, they kind of did little things. And that goes back to the original show, actually. They use okay. the term frack as, as an expletive. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, it just so happened that the, that the reimagined show, the redone show, the, redone, the, the newer version of the show right. came out just as fracking, you know, was taking off. And, mm-hmm. and, and so it was just too delicious to pass up. And and so, you know, you hear a lot of environmentalists and stuff talk about fracking in a negative way. Mm-hmm. And you hear them say things like, oh, that's a fracking pipeline or a fracking well or frack. There's no such thing as that. Okay. The wells are the same. Mm-hmm. The drilling equipment is, is largely the same. The process is different. What happens under the ground is different, but the actual... You know, you can't look at a well, and unless you are really knowing what you're looking for, you can't look at a drilling rig and tell me whether it's being fracked or not, whether that well is being fracked or not. Now, if yeah. you see, you know, certain equipment sitting around the well site, you might be able to tell. But I guarantee you, most of the people that you know throw these terms around really aren't distinguishing between conventional oil and gas wells and and, and wells that are being fracked. So okay. That said, um, what the what the you know some of the people I talked to wanted me to 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 say was they wanted to, me to refer to George Mitchell as the father of the shale gas revolution. And I said, you know, I just, I don't think most people outside of the business know what the shale gas revolution is. So, Well, and some people <laughs> might not know what fracking is either, or is as true. you called it, rock massage. Rock I think we massage. should refer to it as that from now on. And we can just see if it sticks. But um, yes, so George Mitchell is known as the father of fracking, which I think maybe you dispute in your book. What What is fracking, first of all? Just give us kind of a quick and dirty explanation of um, of the rock massage. And then, um, and and why is he called that? So, so fracking is basically the process. Of you, you drill a well into um, shale, in this case, right, which is very hard, very dense rock. Mm-hmm. And, and so normally what happens is when you drill into, into a, a typical oil and gas reservoir, oil pools in, in spaces in the rock, in, in porous rock like limestone and things like that. So you drill, you basically pierce this, this pool of oil and gas uh, underground, and it, and it comes up to the surface, right? What happens with, with shale is because it's so dense, the, the, the amount of oil and gas is, is locked in this really, really tight rock. There aren't these little reservoirs. So you have to actually break open the rock in order to get the oil and gas out. And mm-hmm. it comes out in very, very tiny amounts. And so what the process does is you drill into this and then you, you shoot water and sand down into the wellbore and that causes the rock to to crack, basically. Mm-hmm. And we're talking very, very tiny cracks here. This is the other thing people don't understand. A grain of sand is actually propping open these fractures. They call them propants for that reason. It's actually propping open the fracture so that the oil and gas can come out. 
Okay. So it's not like this. So it's not like you're, you know, explosion. ripping the earth apart or, you know, something uh-huh. like that. Anyway, so that's kind of <laughs> in, in very general terms, that's what the process is. And what George Mitchell did, he did not actually invent fracking. It had been around for probably a hundred years before he, he actually did it. We've, you know, oil and gas uh, drillers had found years ago that if you, you know, basically had a way to, you know, blow up parts of the, the rock underneath the earth, you'd get more oil and gas out of it. Um, and they used all kinds of crazy stuff, nitroglycerin. Uh, there was even uh, the, the federal government actually tested using a nuclear bomb in fracking, um, mm-hmm. it, which actually was very effective. And they, they did it in New Mexico. And uh, it was actually very effective in getting the gas out. The problem was it was radioactive. <laughs> so, you know, that was, a, that was a bit of a problem. But what George Mitchell did, he and his team, uh, they, they had a, a gas field in North Texas, in Wise County, that had been producing a lot of gas for them for many, many years. And it was depleting. And they wanted – they had a lot of infrastructure there. They had a long-term contract to sell gas to Chicago. So they really wanted to find more gas in the same area. And and what he realized was if you could unlock the shale, it's in the same field. It's just lower in the earth. Hmm. And so it's like finding a second field underneath the first one. Yeah. And that was really kind of the original – drive to, to, you know, how do we get this? How do we get this unlocked? How do we... And so um, the fracking process was one thing that they tried. It had been used successfully in Appalachia and some other places, but the geology is different everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so the, the question was, how do you adapt this to this particular type of shale and and get commercial quantities of gas out of it, which was what took them 17 years to figure out. It was really a lot of trial and error, a lot of kind of changing different elements of the recipes. And then the thing that ultimately made it work was it used to be they, again, you're using, you're, you're using this sand. You've got to shoot the sand out and it's going to hold these fractures open. So they would put it in the, kind of this gel uh, because they needed it to stay in place. Well, what Mitchell was able to figure out, what his engineers were able to figure out was that you could use water to do that. Mm-hmm. And that nobody thought that was possible. Everybody thought that's crazy. It's just going to wash out. Right. And it turned out that eventually they found the right way to do it, um, but it took a very long time. Okay. So he's not the father of fracking in the sense that he invented fracking. He did not invent fracking, but he invented how to use fracking to unlock these massive natural gas reserves that nobody thought we had. Okay. Right. If you go back 15 years, nobody thought we. We had that much gas left. We were, we were going to import gas. Remember, mm-hmm. they were building all these terminals on the Gulf Coast to import right. gas, and now we're exporting gas. Right, so, right. You know, that's kind of what he changed. So, one of the things you say in the book was that George Mitchell had these incongruous passions. What did you mean when you said that? <laughs> Well, you know, his son Todd put it another way. He used to call it the Mitchell paradox. Right. On the one hand, the guy, you know, develops fracking as we know it. On the other hand, he was a big believer in sustainable development. Right. You know, the Woodlands, it it really started out as uh, George Mitchell became very, very concerned about the impact of population and the growth of cities and, Mm -hmm. and, and what was happening with American cities. If you remember... Well, you probably don't remember any more than I do, but in the '60s, uh, there were there were uh, there was a lot of urban strife, right? There was mm-hmm. a lot of riots. There was all kinds of problems, urban decay, if you will. You had white flight, and and so George Mitchell was in a group called the Young Presidents Organization, and it's kind of a lot of you know socially minded young executives, and they went around and they toured a lot of these areas. They toured the Watts area of L.A. and places like that. And he became very concerned with, how, you know, what are we doing wrong? Why are our cities, why are our big cities in such bad shape? Mm-hmm. And he started thinking about how do we how do we come up with a different way of doing that? How you know, and and you really have to start 
from the beginning. You have to build the city in a different way. And that was that was the original idea for the Woodlands. Okay. That's that's so interesting. You know, the reason the Woodlands is where it is is because um, as George began to make money in, in his oil and gas business, um, one of the guys who he had done a lot of work with was a guy named Red Smith, who was, uh, actually helped bring the Astros to town and, and was, you know, a key backer of the Astrodome and, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And, and had made, already made a fortune in oil and gas. And then he met George Mitchell and George helped him make another fortune. Um, and, and one of the things that, that Red Smith told him was, you know, uh, you can make one fortune on the ground, uh, in the ground, and you can make another one on the ground, we, meaning real estate. He was encouraging him to diversify into mm-hmm. real estate. So George Mitchell started looking at where he could buy up land, and he bought uh, Pelican Island, for example, right. and and some other places. And there was all this timberland north of Houston uh, in Montgomery County that um, had been owned by the, the Grogan's Cochran um, lumber company. Mm-hmm. It was a family-owned business, but there was a bunch of heirs, and they were all fighting, and they couldn't figure out what to do with the land. And so he just decided basically to buy it all. Hmm. And um, it took him a number of transactions, but he assembled this big piece of land, and it's like, okay, okay now I have all this timber land. What do I do with it? And so that's when that idea, you know, the, the idea of land ownership combined with this idea of solving problems, building a city, and, you know, he also, because of the work he had done in Houston, protecting the bayous and, and you know, what he saw of development in Houston, he wanted to do it differently. And he felt like people wanted to live in in the trees, mm-hmm. among the trees, not, mm-hmm. in the, not in the trees, but among <laughs> the trees. Um, and, and yet, you know, the developers really weren't paying much attention to those kind of amenities. And so those ideas all came together as kind of the, the impetus for mm-hmm. what became the Woodlands. And so what did his peers think of what he was doing? They thought he was nuts. They, they did? It was crazy. It was like, what are you doing? They're like, you know, why are you doing this? First of all, it's way out on the outskirts of town. Right. Okay. And and again, his reason for doing that was he said, if you look south of Houston, it's all, um, you know, it's all different cities, right? There's a bunch of suburban communities and whatnot. Right. And you're never going to get, you're going to have to deal with all these different jurisdictions and rules and it's going to be a big hassle. North of town, there was nothing, right? It, it was, was all just, just unincorporated. Land. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, to him, that made more sense. And he thought growth was going to go that way, which, of course, it has. Um, and so he began to, to realize, like, this was kind of an ideal laboratory to mm-hmm. test out some of these ideas. But, yeah, most other developers at the time weren't too happy about it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they really didn't get what he was trying to do. Right. So he funded it initially with this government loan. Was he successful? I, I mean, this this thing took decades to grow. How did he sort of keep it going? Yeah, the, you know, there's not there there wasn't like a scientific plan. I mean, one of the things that was very characteristic of George Mitchell was he kind of flew by the seat of his pants. He sort of followed his instinct on this stuff. And he had this, you know, very long-term vision of where he wanted it to be. He envisioned the Woodlands being a community of, you know, 150,000 people mm-hmm. and and actually part of the city of Houston. That was a very important thing to him. But there wasn't really like a strategic – I mean, they, they mapped out the growth, but there wasn't really a sort of, you know, this is how we're going to make the project successful financially over time. That really never happened because he didn't care if he made money on it. He mm-hmm. was perfectly happy to lose money – for 30 years, if that's what it took, because mm-hmm. he believed that it ultimately this would benefit everyone. It would benefit the people who lived there. It would benefit his company and it would benefit the city of Houston. But the city of Houston never annexed it. 
They never annexed it because, um, well, first of all, he had to sell the woodlands. Uh, so we're, we're kind of jumping all around. I know. Here, but um, let me come back to the loan. Let me. Let me okay. So, okay. So what he did. So what he did was he was trying to figure out how to finance this because basically, you know, George Mitchell financed everything. He was he was as his, one of his sons told me he was the master of leverage. He was the king of debt. And and so he started looking at ways to finance it and how he was gonna you know and, and nobody wanted to lend money against you know basically empty timberland mm-hmm. and so. Um, he he actually found out about the new cities program, which was something that the government, that HUD, was funding to try to to address many of these same problems. And so he decided to go that route, which ultimately led to a lot of frustration because the government had a lot of restrictions they right. wanted to put on. And, and eventually, he did pay off the loan. And the Woodlands was the only new cities program that did not wind up going through bankruptcy. Why do you think that was? Just because he was such a master of finance? He was really determined to make it work in a way that that I think with the other programs, you didn't have sort of one person who was the sole visionary of what it should be. Mm-hmm. Really, the Woodlands, in a lot of ways, grew just as an extension of George Mitchell's will, you know, just as the force of his own sheer determination to make it work and his willingness to put a lot of his company's money into the project, regardless of what the financial outcome was going to be. There was a lot of, um, by that point, the oil company, you know, had, had become rather large and there was a lot of friction within the company. The The oil and gas guys felt like they were making all the money and the Woodlands was was spending it all. Right. You know? <laughs> it's right. like, we're just making, and there was some truth to that, especially initially, that, that really was kind of the case. Um, was there a point in his career where he sort of put energy to the side, oil and gas, and focused on development or the woodlands? Yeah, it actually happened the other way around. Um, in the in the 1990s, it was really a, a tough time. It was a tough time for all oil companies. It was especially tough time for Mitchell Energy because that gas field in North Texas was depleting. Fracking had not yet come together for them. Mm-hmm. And the stock price kept dropping and dropping. Wall Street always had a hard time figuring out, was this a real estate company? Was it an oil and gas company? And they, for years, the analysts had been urging him to, to sell one or the other, and he refused. So it was really, it was getting pretty desperate. I mean, the, the, the stock price kept dropping and dropping and dropping. They, they finally realized they had, to, they had to do something. They had to sell one business or the other. And at that time, there were a number of lawsuits in, in Wise County by homeowners who claimed that uh, their water was being contaminated by gas that was being drilled. And this was not, these were not fracking wells. Um, this was, <laughs> nothing was being fracked up there. These were just conventional gas wells, but mm. they claimed their their water supplies were being contaminated. And because of that lawsuit uh, or series of lawsuits, they couldn't sell the oil company because no, it was just kind of this open-ended liability. And so they wound up having to sell the Woodlands. And, and he said it was kind of like letting go of your of your child. I mean, it was, he, he called the Woodlands his 11th child. He had 10 children. He called it his 11th child. And so it was it was very hard for him, but mm-hmm. he knew he had to do something. And mm-hmm. so he sold, he sold the company in, in 1997. Okay. So again, this gets back to the government. Uh, they were putting together the proposal for the government right. for the new cities program, and they just they they just came up with a placeholder. Uh, they decided to call it Satellite City, right? Satellite and city. and which is kind of cool if you think about it, Houston being space city. Is kind of, you know, I thought that was actually kind of a, a niftier name than they, they weren't thinking of those terms yeah. at all. But uh, but anyway, um, so they they put in the application Satellite City, and they were supposed to leave for Washington at like seven in the morning. 
And at like 2 a.m., one of the guys who was working on the plan looks it over and he sees this thing in the instructions. It was buried deep in the in the federal guidelines. And it said, you know, that the government did not want to fund the creation of satellite cities. <gasps> and so they're like, he, he calls the other guy in a panic and he's like, we can't, we got to come up with a different name. You know, we can't call it this because they're going to shoot it down right. for sure. And so the other guy was like, well, there's a lot of woods. We'll just call it Woodland Woodland City or something. It was, it was, yeah. it was something very close to that. And, um, and they slapped it on there and they sent it off. And then what George Mitchell always said was that the uh, family um, preserve that cook, what's now Cook's Branch, that that was originally called the Woodlands. And Cynthia loved, loved the name. His wife, his Cynthia, wife. loved mm-hmm. the name so much that she suggested they call the entire development that. That's a that's a much uh, kind of better story, I guess. Um, yes, and there may be truth to both of them. Right, um, but but, but the I first think one sounds the first you know, one sounds more specific. realistic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, and now there's the Woodlands Hills. What do you think of that? They're they're part two follow up, and not George Mitchell's, but the current owners, the Howard Hughes. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's interesting because any several companies have owned the Woodlands since George Mitchell right. did. And they, they all did something that he really didn't care that much about, which is they, they decided maybe they should make money on right. this real estate right. investment. And so they've had to take a different approach. And you can see that in the way some of the newer parts of the Woodlands have been developed. Um, it's, it's a little different. It has a little different feel. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the office developments are, are different. You know, you're, you're just yeah. trying to get Get a little more out of everything because you're trying to actually make money, and I think Woodlands Hills is you know you're extending the brand mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. Um, and and if you're a real estate company, that's what you're supposed to do. I don't know how George Mitchell would have felt about it. You know, he he had a, a very specific. I think he probably would have said, "We need to work on what we've already got, mm-hmm. and and you know make sure we're fulfilling all these other ideals that he had, which you know, and in, in many cases didn't didn't happen. Right. I remember writing a story a couple of years ago about how you couldn't buy a new house in the woodlands for under 300 or $350,000 and his w- initial goal was for it to be a place that could house people of all socioeconomic backgrounds. Yeah, that was really important to him. And um, he wanted there to be a lot of government subsidized housing, for right. example. Um, there's very little today. Right. You know, they built golf courses and houses on the golf course, but he made sure that some of those houses were, you know, starter homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, you, you know, a lot of those are being torn down and million dollar houses mm-hmm. are being put up. And that wasn't his vision. He uh, he was very opposed to the idea of gated communities. He thought they were, they were terrible. They were exclusive, you know, you didn't have, you couldn't bring people together. And he did not want any gated communities in the woodlands. And of course, now, now there are. But, you know, I think he would also be somewhat philosophical about it because these are things that happen when a city comes into its own and people begin making decisions about the community that they live in. We talked a little bit about it becoming part of Houston. I mean, right. his his view was always that one of the big problems with suburbs is they basically suck tax dollars out of the city, right? So, you know, people of means are able to live further away. So they move further out and they take their money with them and they Mm -hmm. take their tax revenue with them. And so his idea was, no, no, the Woodlands may draw people out of Houston, but then it's all coming back, right? Mm -hmm. Because the only reason they're there is because of Houston. And so he very strongly felt like, you know, we were not going to be a siphon for tax revenue from Houston. We're going to, you know, that's all going to come back. And of course, 
he had he had sold the company by the time that sort of came to a head, and the residents of, of the Woodlands said, "We don't want to be part of Houston. That's why we're <laughs> in the Woodlands, right?" And and so, which is something you would, would kind of anticipate, and so that led to the kind of the deal in which you know the Woodlands agreed to pay Houston a certain amount of money, and you know that kind of thing. But you know, again, that's what happens. A city takes on a life of its own. It makes its own decisions about governance and and you know development and all those kinds of things. But I think the fundamental challenge um, that became very apparent when I was working on the book was here you had, you know, a, a wealthy white man mm-hmm. and he had, you know, a staff of other, if not wealthy, you know, well off white men mm-hmm. and they're going to build a city that's going to attract, you know, minorities and that's going to, you know, attract different socioeconomic. I'm not sure they really understood how to do that. And the other, the other thing was that, that when George, he, he wanted, George Mitchell wanted the Woodlands to be a place where people lived and worked. But to him, working was office work, right? Right. And so they built office buildings. They built things like Hark, you know, the the research uh, facility. But you don't see any manufacturing in the Woodlands. It wasn't like they built an auto plant or something. So you weren't going to get the kind of blue collar jobs that that you really needed to fulfill that vision. Yeah. And you know, you could argue that it would be kind of hard to call a place the Woodlands if it has a big manufacturing plant in the middle of it. Right. Uh, but I think that was one of the key challenges in terms of economic diversity. Um, you know, it just wasn't there. So he had that idea. It never really took hold. I'm not sure he really knew how to make all that happen. He knew what he wanted, but that was something that kind of eluded him in terms of how do you actually make that happen. And some of that was, you know, his own station in life, and some of it was was the times. You know, let's let's be honest. I mean, right. in the early 1970s, it was not a time where we thought about diversity in the way that we do now. And so I don't think anybody thought it was ironic that you had, you know, a a company of wealthy white people trying to figure out how to get more minorities to move into their development. You know, it just wasn't something that anybody really focused on. Yeah. Well, I think it would be interesting also to talk about where he lived in Houston, kind of in different stages of his life. Because I looked at that section of your book because I just think that says a lot about people where they <laughs> where they decide to live and um i i i guess i started with um an apartment that he lived in with his wife and i think it had two bedrooms and they had four kids so you know that was kind of typical of the time um to be sort of shoved into a, a smaller space and then they moved to a house on north mcgregor which is in riverside terrace mm-hmm. which is such a, a significant neighborhood in houston where there was a lot of white flight probably around the time that he lived there or shortly after he lived there. Then he moved to Memorial. Can you talk about what that was so that so, was like? So interesting. The North McGregor house, which is the one that that a lot of the kids remember, there's they're very fond memories. That's kind of where the family really started to come together. And that was actually a house that Cynthia very much wanted. Mm-hmm. You know, she had such an eye for design and she was very plugged into the arts. And and when she first moved to Houston, she used to uh, take night classes at U of H and she would drive through that neighborhood and she dreamed of always having a house like that. So once they got to the point that they had some money, that was really her vision to to buy that place. And then they 
they decided, well, they kept having kids. So <laughs> I mean, they had 10 kids. So eventually, you know, you have to get a bigger house. And what they did was they, they did actually move to Memorial and they designed the house um, that was right on, on Buffalo Bayou. And it was, uh, I believe, about 12,000 square feet. So right. a pretty good sized house. It yeah, had a whole said separate, it was a football field from one side It was a football field other. from one side to the other. And it, and it, had, um, it had a separate wing for the kids. <laughs> and it's just like it's amazing the details of this house. Two washing machines, two dryers. You know, okay. you had you had a family of twelve, so you, yeah. you needed kind of this unique setup. But he did a lot of other things with that house that that they brought in rock from the hill country, and they, um, you know, it was very much uh, it, it was where he started kind of testing out some of these ideas of living in harmony with the environment. Um, he had a, a very unique concrete uh, roof designed, which apparently never worked because uh, the kids talked about how it always leaked. <laughs> but but other than that, it was a very, very unique house and, in fact, was featured in, a, I think, a six- or eight-page spread in Fortune magazine in, mm -hmm. in 1966 uh, because it was so so unusual. Very modernistic, which was a style that he and Cynthia both favored a lot. And the interiors had this kind of uh, – parts of it were painted with this kind of orange uh, paint on the wall. He loved orange even though he was an Aggie. It was very strange. Uh. <laughs> so that house was designed by Carl Kamrath, who yes. is a famous American architect, designed a, a ton of stuff in Houston. And, 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 and they were friends. He and George Mitchell um, were friends. They, they played tennis together. You know, Carl okay. Kamrath was a big uh, tennis player. Mm -hmm. He was in the Texas Tennis Hall of Fame, as is George Mitchell. So. <laughs> and the, ca the house I read cost $700,000 to build and at the time. Yeah, yes. at the time, today's terms, that would be five and a half million. So, and it was demolished, wasn't it? Yes. Okay. Yes. After they, you know, obviously later, um, after the Woodlands opened, he, he kept the house for a while. He mm -hmm. really didn't want to let go of it. He loved the house, but he, he wanted to live in the Woodlands because he had built an entire town. And mm -hmm. so his son, Scott, actually designed their house in the Woodlands and they moved up there. By that time, the kids were gone. So it was, it was a smaller place. It was still like 4,000 square feet or something. It wasn't tiny, right. but... Um, but yeah, um, and so after they moved to the Woodlands, then eventually they sold the place and it was torn down. Okay. And then their house in the Woodlands, is that still there? It is still there. Yes. Um, and and who, who lives there now? I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I've driven by a number of times. It is, you know, a, a family. Uh, uh -huh. I don't know if they... They're probably aware that it was George Mitchell's Gosh, house. I hope uh, so. The, the, in, <laughs> the interiors are very unique. But yeah, it was up for sale probably five or six years ago, I think. Okay. Um, huh. You know, so... Yeah. So as as we talked about earlier, there's been a lot of changes that have happened in the woodlands, and it's really sort of taken a, a different direction um, since it's been sold multiple times. And a couple of the things that as a, a reporter covering Houston, as a, as a real estate reporter, I hear a lot about is traffic and flooding. And I feel like in you know, in the past few years, gosh, I've heard stories about people that are now leaving the woodlands because there's too much traffic and it's too crowded. And then, of course, after Hurricane Harvey, there were actually parts of the woodlands that did flood. There were there were newer parts of the woodlands that flooded. Absolutely. Um, yeah. There have also been parts, newer parts of the woodlands where there's been at least what appears to be clear cutting. I don't know if it meets the, the true definition, but um, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, again, I mean, this, you know, George Mitchell was out of it for, you know, a long, long time by that point. But, you know, what was interesting to me was that during Harvey, 
the original parts of the woodlands where they paid all that attention to flood control and design, they didn't have any problems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and one of the things that 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 George Mitchell and his team were very adamant about with the woodlands was not only that they didn't want to have flooding in the woodlands, they didn't want to have downstream flooding. They didn't want their development to contribute to problems further further down the the channel. Mm-hmm. And so they worked very hard to make sure that. There was not, you know, that that basically the woodlands wasn't keeping all the water away from its houses and then just dumping them on everybody else's. Um, and they spent a lot of time working on, you know, it, it, it's subtle, but there's a lot of really big ditches. Um, they used to, they, I, I guess we can say this on a podcast, they used to call them bads, big ass ditches. <laughs> and they, they put them, you know, in, down these green belts because they were trying to channel the water. But they also served as an area for wildlife to, to move back and forth and, and you know, regardless of how yeah. developed the area got. And so there was a lot of t- attention like that that was put into it. You don't think of that area as having much change in elevation, but the main roads like Woodlands Parkway are actually on small ridges. And so the water moves away from the roadways. And the way they built the, the way they built residential lots, they didn't clear cut, but they paid a lot of attention to, to, to water flow. And, and Anybody who's lived in the woodlands, uh, especially in the older villages, know that if your neighbors put in a fence or they they change anything, it screws up all the water flow because it was so carefully done mm-hmm. that that the slightest change, uh, you know, can wow. can cause problems. So you have to be careful. So think think before you dig. Yeah. <laughs> so when when he left, when he sold, how much of the woodlands was developed? It was probably about half the size that it is now. Okay. Um, the 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 villages further back, uh, as people in the woodlands say, in the back, uh-huh. um, they weren't there. Uh, okay. So you know, I don't think Sterling Ridge had been started yet. Might have might have begun, but now all of this was planned out, of course. But they hadn't actually begun construction on that. So, okay. well, it's great hearing you talk about how he, he thought so much about flooding and about where the water is going to flow as a developer, because obviously now everyone is talking about that. And so many builders and developers have been criticized for not doing that. So he had this passion. He loved nature. He cared about the world. You know, was he able to do that, you think, just because he was kind of a wealthy guy who wanted to have this experiment of creating this new town or... Satellite yeah. city or whatever you want to yeah, call it. Yeah, I mean, I think it. that's part of it, right? He obviously had the means to do it. He yeah. acquired the land. But, you know, I mean, he was a wealthy guy. He could have done anything he wanted in his spare time. He didn't right. have to do this, right? He could have, you know, bought a big fancy plane or a boat or, you know, uh, I don't know. Sure. Gone on a safari, yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, you know, we we we've seen lots of wealthy people who don't decide to go out and start their own city. It was something he really cared yeah. about. I mean, he really believed in it, and he had a real vision about it. And it and it and it fit with the other things he was doing. You know, fracking. You know, despite the fact that it's become this sort of environmental scourge, um, you know, he was trying to get more natural gas. He was very focused on natural gas in his company back in the early 70s at a time when most people were still just thought it was a a waste product. They were burning it off. You know, he said natural gas is going to be the fuel of the future. And and there really weren't many people in the oil business that were talking that way. But he believed that, that it was a way, you know... It's not the perfect solution, but it's better than it's better than coal. Mm-hmm. It's better than oil, and so you know it was a step in the right direction. And the woodlands was kind of the same way. It's like I didn't solve all the problems with this, 
but I solved a bunch of them. I thought of better ways to do stuff. And indeed, you've seen a lot of the ideas of master plan communities, you know, have borrowed heavily from the woodlands. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, not all of them are willing to, you know, go without profit for, you know, 20 or 30 years <laughs> or, or, you know, uh, go to the extent that he did. But you see a lot of the ideas of, you know, nature trails and walking paths and things like that, that, that really, you know, the woodlands kind of took to a new level. And you see that in, in other developments. Right. Springwoods Village, which is that development uh, just, I guess, south of the woodlands where Exxon is located, is also, you know, big on sustainability. That's a big part of their their marketing campaign, at least. And, and the, um, what is it, Grand, Grand Central, the former Boy Scout camp? Grand Central Park. Yes. I think is what it's called. Yeah. 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 So, you know, they, the same thing. I mean, look, if you're going to do a, a, a new community in that area and it's not the woodlands, you're going to want to try to make it as much like the woodlands as you can because the fact is when people come to town and they start looking, then you may say, oh, the woodlands, you got mud taxes, you got, you know, the, mm -hmm. you know. But when you start looking, it's like you realize, oh, I'm going to be going to the woodlands for everything, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, that's kind of where it is. That's the center uh, of that whole area now. And and it really is it is an extremely livable place. I mean, I lived there for 13 years. I can tell you it spoils you for, yeah. for other places because it really is – it is just a, a very livable area, a very livable, livable neighborhood. Right. I, I wanted to ask you lastly if, if you thought that his stamp that he put on the woodlands, his – you know, his ideas have, do you still see them? I mean, are they still a part of the woodlands? Is it still fair to call the woodlands a George Mitchell development when there's been so much change? It, it is only because he still has a very loyal group of followers there who very much believe in what he was doing. And, and, and you know, a great many people from Mitchell Energy retired and are still living there. Um, and they're very, very devoted. You know, I have a story in the book. At one point, my wife was having some minor surgery, and and you know, I, I was talking to the doctor who happened to be our neighbor uh, about you know he was like, okay, you can bring the car around to pick her up, and I'm like, oh, so should I pull in the the drive at the front? And all of a sudden, he like he he had a clipboard, you know, he like flips it over and he starts drawing a schematic of the hospital. And he's like, yes, because this is the brilliance of what Mr. Mitchell did when he de designed <laughs> the hospitals. They don't face the frontage roads; they face in. So that you know, and he goes through yeah. this whole kind of mini lecture. And I said, I just want to know which door to pull the car to. <laughs> but that's the kind of thing you run into even now. There's a there's it, it's interesting because the the Woodlands is not a community that has a lot of history. Obviously, mm -hmm. it's you know less than 50 years old, mm -hmm. but it still has an incredible amount of civic pride. And there are a lot of people, especially the, the people that have been there a while, who really, really believe in the place. And so I think they do still identify with George Mitchell with the fact that this is, you know, the living example of his vision. Yeah. And it means a lot to them. Now, yeah. over time, that may, that may start to fade, but I think it's very, very much still alive right now. Yeah. And I think uh, we should also mention Roger Gladys. He he Absolutely. just recently died, and he was the president of the Woodlands for a bunch of years and worked directly for George Mitchell and lived out there. And, and like you said, he was the, you know, he was a, a longtime champion of the area. And one thing that I, I thought was funny when I was writing about him recently, he had a, um, a coffee club. Yep. That uh, it was, what was it called? The George George's, Mitchell Coffee Club? Yeah, or the, George's Coffee Club. Yes, George's yes. Coffee Club. Yeah, okay. I've spoken to them. It's, a, it's an oh, amazing yeah. group. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so I think those are some of the people probably that you mentioned that are still really believe in oh, the absolutely. original mission and, and sort of 
carrying it out. You know, you know, Roger was obviously a key part of that. Uh, Colson Tuff, who actually we didn't talk about Galveston, but but you know, right. Colson led uh, George Mitchell's uh, efforts to to renovate, to to resuscitate Galveston, revitalize Galveston. Um, you know, yeah, those, those guys are are just you know phenomenal people. Mm-hmm. They were a huge help in writing the book, and you know, tons of great stories about. Uh, George Mitchell and, yeah. and, you know, what they did up there. So. Well, yeah. So I was looking through the the book and you have a section of pictures. The the one I kind of stopped on and, and chuckled about was the one where he was in Galveston and was, you know, wearing like tons and tons of Mardi Gras beads around his neck. I thought that was funny. Was you like, know, it, the, the Galveston stuff was really great because he, he never lost his love for Galveston. He obviously, you know, was born there, grew up there. Um, and, and the Mardi Gras stuff, you're, you're like, well, why would he want to get involved? The whole idea of Mardi Gras was, again, to bring people together. It, it was kind of mm-hmm. not unlike what he did in the in the, the way the Woodlands is laid out with the villages and the shopping centers that are centrally located. It was all about bringing people together. And and his son Scott told me what he was really trying to replicate was the way Galveston was when he was a kid, where you had these different ethnic neighborhoods, and he would just kind of go around from one area to another, and you'd have different kinds of food and different music. <laughs> and all this stuff. And and that's kind of what he remembered. And that's what he was hoping to capture um, with the Woodlands. And and Mardi Gras was a way of kind of bringing some of that back. And and there was this great anecdote in the um, in the book where I believe it, Dancy Ware, his long-term publicist, was mm-hmm. talking about how he loved uh, to bring people to Mardi Gras. And he brought like Robert Gates, who you know went on to be defense secretary, who was at the time president of A&M, brings him to the parade and, you know, people are throwing beads and he's grabbing for him. And, and George said, you know, look at him just like a little kid. You know, it was sort of this <laughs> democratizing moment where, you know, anybody could grab a bead. Anybody could go to a parade. It was open to everyone. And 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 so, you know, the whole the whole Galveston thing was really uh, that was a fascinating part of the story. Wow. Well, you can read all about it in George P. Mitchell, Fracking, Sustainability and an Unorthodox Quest to Save the Planet. With an Oxford comma, I should mention in the title. That's, <laughs> yeah, that, was, that seems controversial. That was it is it is very controversial. It was not my doing. <laughs> I wouldn't have as thought a, so. As a as a you know journalist for thirty years, I, right. I, I've, I've still tried to get used to the Oxford comma. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Lauren. Well, thank you so much. Thank this you. Is, this has been this has been great. I appreciate it. All right, listeners, until next time, thanks for listening to Looped In. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you have an idea for a show or you just want to say hi, you can reach me. I am on Facebook and Twitter at N Sarnoff. Thanks for listening and see you next time.